Good morning, and happy Sabbath to you. I'm just going to just put this over here real quick. I am thankful that we can study here together. I um, was teasing my wife uh, that I was going to make her breakfast tomorrow, and you should understand why that's a tease, okay? Um, I remember our first Mother's Day, um, I decided I was going to make her French toast because it's one of her favorite breakfasts. And I think um, after six pieces stuck to the pan and I dropped it abruptly into the sink, probably more roughly than I needed to, um, we ended up, my wife made French toast for her Mother's Day breakfast. Um, But I hope that we can do something different. I just praise God for my mother today and and many different mothers. I, I got a very sad message today. Um, A mother in Israel, not here in Cape Cod, but in my life, uh, passed away this morning at 5.30, and is just one of those, it hits you. Um, Had nothing to do with COVID-19, it had to do with life, and uh, I think it was cancer-related and some other things connected with that. But um, I praise God for the mothers we have that are alive, and I praise God for the mothers that have passed on. We know that we can rest in the God of the resurrection. Amen. At this time, we are going to pick up our, our class, our, 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 our journey in the first three chapters of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. We spent two weeks on Revelation chapter 1. After studying this week, I realized I should probably spend two weeks in Revelation 2, but I'm not. So God bless you. Put on your seatbelts and hold on, because this is going to be uh, a full message, but um, remember, what is our main focus in Revelation? Jesus is the theme of Revelation. And so uh, I have a little question that I have when I'm studying the Bible, and you might want to do this sometime yourself. Uh, When I'm looking at a place, I ask, where is Jesus? Where is he? When I'm studying, I want to see where he's at, because sometimes we can get so caught up in the facts and the figures that we miss him. And um, so I ask that question to remind myself, where is he? Uh, Where is Jesus when we're studying and um, all right, I am looking, trying to get organized here myself. All right, do you mind um, just bowing your heads with me? Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us a gift of ears. I pray that you would speak through me and that you would be heard. I ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Like any class, I'm going to start out with a review. Um, if you were going to tune out as soon as I said review, please don't. I have an interesting story to get started with, but I'm going to do that right after the review. Okay, so here it is. Some things we've looked at in the last eh, couple weeks. First of all, each major section of Revelation starts with a vision of Jesus or sanctuary. Um, and so you will see that um, we saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, a picture of him, and he, and he really gives the, the foundation for everything we're looking at in Revelation 2 and 3. If you do not look at the seven churches in light of Revelation chapter 1, you're missing the messages of the seven churches. I think that's a key for us to realize. Next, as high priest, Christ, Jesus is closely watching over the lampstands. Uh, in, old, in, the, in the Hebrew sanctuary, the high priest uh, was the one who morning and evening would take care of the lamps when he went in to do the incense on the altar of incense. So this was something that was taken care of by the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one watching over the candlesticks of the churches today. And um, his job is to make sure the light keeps burning. And uh, we're going to come back to that in, in many different ways. Also, Revelation's visions are for John's time through till the end of time. Um, Try and see which direction do you read. You're reading this way, right? Okay, got it. So in John's time, he would have a vision, and his vision would go from his time till the end of time. And it's the same thing. You see it in Daniel. Daniel starts out with Babylon and goes to the end of time. And a few years later, when he's in Medo-Persia ruling, it starts in Medo-Persia and goes to the end of time. It's the same thing with John. So John, we see this cycle, just like in Daniel, repeated three, four times. We see it being repeated in the book of Revelation. 
Seven churches is the first time you see this cycle, starting with the time of John and proceeding to the end of time. So this is a, a common thing in what we call apocalyptic prophecy, and that's what Revelation is. Um, the next point uh, in our review is Revelation is written in symbolic language. The very first verse said, and, and the, Jesus sent it through his angel who signified it unto the church. That word signified is the Greek word samano, and it is a sign or symbol to teach something. It is written with symbols. Uh, the words themselves are not symbolic, but they are telling symbols to help us to understand what's being written there. It's real things being symbolized. Next one, much of the revelation is taken from the Old Testament. Yes, there is some sections, and we may look at one or two of them today, that are actually taken from the current time, the contemporary setting of Revelation. But a large percentage, some guess as high as 85% of the book of Revelation, is taken in whole or part from the Old Testament. And so knowing that is helpful. Today we're going to be looking at two very key examples from the Old Testament that would help us understand what took place in the time of the early church and also in the time of history that we'll be looking at. And also the last one, each church has a revelation of Jesus that is necessary for them. What does that mean? We kind of closed with this thought last, last week in our last presentation. Jesus reveals of himself what is necessary for that church. He does that for us too. Um, the way Jesus reveals himself to my friend Scott is different than the way God reveals himself to me sometimes. I mean, there's the big overall package of who Christ is, that he died for our sins, we can have faith in him, we can trust him, and we have grace. But there is also sometimes he says something to you that he's not going to say to me. And sometimes he tells me things that I'm so glad he doesn't tell you. I mean, because he's relating to us in different ways. Uh, our God relates to us in the ways that we need to be related to. And it's not always that uncommon. I have three children. And I relate to my three children in three different ways. Sometimes they don't understand it. Some of them might even scream, not fair. But the reality is they are three different people who need three different ways of communicating. There's some general things. You don't hit each other, right? There's some general things. You don't say mean things to each other, but there are some more specifics. Uh, this one needs more time here. This one needs more time here. This one needs more time here. Jesus is doing the same thing with the seven churches. And he relates, he, he reveals himself uh, to each one in a different way. All right. Um, I'm going to go back to this one. I... <laughs> I was in a hurry putting the, the slides together, and I forgot to put in a slide for the introduction story. So here it is. It, there's a story that's told of a lighthouse that was on a, a rough coast. And in that lighthouse, it was before the days of electricity, and so what you used to keep the light going was oil. Oil would keep the light burning, and uh, the job of the keeper of the lighthouse was to keep the light burning. Very simple. Uh, nothing complicated. And so as he received his monthly, because he lived a long distance away from where he would get his supply of oil, as he received his monthly supply, he would meter it out and make sure it was done properly. Well, uh, one month, a lady came by and said, you know what, I'm just needing some extra oil right now. We have no oil in our house. I need a little bit of oil just so I can have light. And he said, sure, no problem. And another person said, you know what, the, the wheels on my wagon are, are squeaking and wheeling. If you could just lend me a little bit of oil, that'd be so helpful. And he did. Well, there's several problems like this that came up here and there. And eventually it came to near the end of the month in time for the next supply. And he was out. That night, a major storm hit. Ships crashed. And when investigators came to find out what happened to him, he told them all his story about how he helped all these people. And they said, no, you were given the oil for one reason, and that's to keep the light burning. Your job as the keeper is to make the light burn. And you know, I, I think of that. Jesus is the keeper of the seven golden camp stands. Candle stands. And he knows what it takes to have the light burn. Sometimes they need the wick trimmed. Sometimes they need a little bit more oil. He knows and he does what's necessary. I remember when I was a kid, the first time I saw my dad trim a candle. I don't know if any of you have ever seen your, uh, a candle being trimmed, but it was so fascinating to me. Um, you had the candle burning and it had this little small flame. And my dad took a pair of scissors and snipped off the top and, and, the, and the wick had become kind of bulby on the top instead of straight. It was kind of like a... a, a, like a, a black bulb 
He cut it off, and all of a sudden the flame went, shh. Whoa, I didn't realize if you trim a lamp, it burns better. I realize now that sometimes Jesus has to do trimming with Chuck Holtry. And maybe he has to do it with you. Um, and that is what he does. He is the keeper of the candle stands. And keeping that in mind as we go through is going to be very helpful in understanding the seven churches. All right. Um, the seven churches. <laughs> we discussed this again, and this is one more review point, but I think you don't want to miss this. Because when we look at the seven churches, sometimes people say the seven churches is... The messages to the seven churches were only applicable in the day of John. Some people will say maybe the messages of the seven churches weren't even applicable then. It's just great lessons and we should be aware of it. Um, however, if we look at the context of the book of Revelation, and that's how you study the Bible, we realize that Revelation was written with symbols, right? Signify, that's the word we have on our screen. How many churches did John write to that were in Asia Minor? Seven. I want to emphasize it was only seven. The reason I emphasize that is because there was many more churches than seven in Asia Minor. Coloss was one of them, where we get the book of Colossians to, uh, not too far from Laodicea. So there were other churches, but only seven were chosen. Next, they were chosen in a certain order, starting with Ephesus, going to Smyrna, going to Pergamos, going to Thyatira, going to Sardis, going to Philadelphia, going to Laodicea. There was a certain order that they went. It wasn't just, well, let's see, I'm going to start out with Laodicea, then go to Ephesus. No, I'm starting with Ephesus first. I'm going to finish with Laodicea. There was a reason for that. It wasn't just happenstance. And then the fact that the number seven, the number seven is used over 50 times in the book of Revelation. Seven, seven, seven. There's sevens everywhere. And, um, and again, this is not because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. But any denomination commentator who's looking at this and noticing, they say sevens everywhere. In fact, I was just reading one this morning, and he said the word seven, is de- the number seven deals with completeness. And so when you look at the seven here, this seven churches are dealing with completeness. So there may have been 20 churches or 21 churches or nine churches, but seven instantly said this is for everybody. And it's also covering a circuit of time that is complete. Uh, it's chronological because it shows a progression of need. And when you and I look at history, we'll recognize that progression in a very clear way. All right. Uh, here's a quotation from a book that I enjoy. Uh, written about the time of the early church. And here's what it says. The names of the seven churches are symbolic of the church in different periods of the Christian era. The number seven indicates completeness and is symbolic of the fact that the messages extend to the end of time while the symbols used reveal the condition of the church at different periods in the history of the world. Fascinating? Absolutely. You will be shocked as we go through and we see this study together. All right. Let's start out with Ephesus. Ephesus, um, I'm going to be sharing some notes. Those of you who like history may enjoy this. Those of you who don't, I promise I won't share too much history, just enough to keep us who like history enjoying this. Okay. Ephesus is the principal city of Asia Minor at that time. Now, there were three main cities. There was Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. All of them were very big cities, well-respected for different reasons. Ephesus... Uh, uh, some would say it was the principal city of Asia. Uh, before I go and tell you too much about Ephesus, open up your Bibles to Ephesians, not Ephesians, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we will read just the portion of this first message. Ephesians chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 2 in the message to the Ephesians or Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus introduces himself to Ephesus by saying, I've got the seven stars in my right hand and I'm walking among the seven golden candlesticks. This is the context of the message to Ephesus and to the seven churches. I'm walking. I'm among you. If I could put it this way, the light of the world, Jesus, is taking care of the light of the world, the seven churches. The light of the world, Jesus, is taking care of the light of the world, seven churches. Um, we both have the same goal. We are filled with him, 
in that light uh, he is working with. Okay, that in mind. Uh, Ephesus, being a principal city, it was located at the mouth of a river, fertile land, ideal climate. Um, At that point, it had a great seaport, a very narrow uh, entrance coming in, could be easily protected. Now, if you go to Ephesus, (laughs) the harbor is actually a shallow marshland. In some places, it's just a long, sandy beach. Uh, Ephesus is no longer. Um, but in their day, it, uh, in the time of John's writing, it was very big. It had a temple to Diana, the goddess Diana, or some people call it Artemis, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was made with marble that was white, red, blue, and yellow. I mean, this is just mammoth structure. Instead of using mortar, they actually used gold. At least that's what they say in the traditions. Um, and almost guarantee that some of that marble came from a little island called Patmos. Uh, interesting enough, just because several mines were there, and probably John was working in some of them. Um, selling of shrines, and I think you will see a picture a little bit later of one of the shrines, was one of the big things in Ephesus. Uh, they had shrines of the goddess Diana, uh, who was a, kind of like a fertility god in some ways. And they would sell these and they would make a lot of money selling it. If you're familiar with the story in Acts of Demetrius and in the big uproar in the city of Ephesus, it's because uh, shrines were so important. Some shrines, they have records they found as they were doing research. They had gold and silver shrines that were valued around a million dollars in today's money. Okay, so this, this was a profitable, if I can use that word, business in Ephesus and uh, very important to them. All right. I'd like to continue our reading. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those that are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. A little bit later, in verse 6, he says, But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. So, some really good things. Ephesus is a really good place in many ways. Uh, We'll read about their problem in a little bit because in almost every single message as you go through, there is an introduction, there is some statements of positiveness, then there is some uh, places where I think you need to improve, and then there's some encouragement all tied together in each message. Interesting enough, um, I like to just focus on the Nicolaitans a little bit. And then we will go to the next part. The Nicolaitans, um, Irenaeus, he was a second century church father. Here's what he said. I'm not quoting him directly, but I'm sharing some of the things he said. There was an indifference to fornication that was being taught by the Nicolaitans and an indifference to eating things that were sacrificed to idols. In other words, yeah, it's not a big deal if you want to you know sleep around don't get too stressed out about it. it's part of the it's part of the temple practices and people will understand and another part that would come out was you know worshiping i mean eating things that are sacrificed to idols you know idols we know they're really not that big of a deal so don't worry about it and so this is kind of the picture that was being taught by the nicolaitans and the ephesians said no way ephesians were a very interesting people if you read what you're reading here ephesians said here is right and here is wrong and we don't agree uh, there were if i can use the phrase black and white thinkers maybe you understand what i'm saying ephesians have that reputation they would they would uh describe them as black and white thinkers um in fact remember that section says you cannot bear those that let's read that again and you Uh, cannot bear those that are evil if you read this story this is in acts chapter 19 uh, that see that image on the screen if you can see it and that is what the shrines look like and of course you could get those in small size or large sign but it was uh, uh, they were selling them for phenomenal amounts of money and it was a great industry in ephesus all right so back to where we at acts chapter 19 acts chapter 19 there was some other things that were also very popular in the city of Ephesus. And one of them was what you and I would call today kind of like magic books. Uh, books that were dealing with superstitious things and, and charms, etc. In Acts chapter 19, it describes 
what they did in verse um, several things, but I'm going to pick up with verse 17. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. That verse is the end of a story, but I just put it in there so you know that we're talking about Ephesus. Please read the rest of the story, maybe this afternoon or when you get a chance. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now remember, selling these books brought in money, and they burned 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books. Why? Because it was wrong. Again, I want you to understand the mindset. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. We just do what we're supposed to do. And verse 20, so the word of God grew, what's the next word? Mightily and prevailed. This is the picture of the work of God in that early church. So the reason why I'm emphasizing this, because it's a good thing. God commends this willingness to say what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. Yet there's something that's missing. There's something that's missing in Ephesus. Remember, Jesus is the keeper, and he's the trimmer, and he's the oil filler. And he comes there and he says, this light is good, but there could use some some help. And here's what could help the light burn brighter, if I could use that phraseology. And we're back in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and it says this. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. You have lost your first love. Now, before I go too much further with this first love experience, could I just mention that Jesus always gives his commendation before his recommendation? He always says, here's where you can, he always says, here's where you're doing well before he tells you where you can come up higher. I like that about us because sometimes you get the idea that God's out there and he's thinking, okay, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, bam, I'm going to hit it. But God is, what's right, what's right, what's right, okay, okay, that's very good, and let me show you a little bit else. Do you see the difference? And sometimes we have the picture of God as completely opposite, but when you go through the seven churches, what's he do first? Commend. Then after that, he gives some recommendations, if I can use that term, sometimes a little stronger than a recommendation. Um, We will get to that. So we have lost this first love. Um, I'm finding this here. You can hold the doctrine of Christ without holding Christ. And that's a dangerous place to be. I mean, the commendation is clear that you want to be knowing what is right and wrong. I mean, that's the commendation of Ephesus. But if you know what's right and wrong and you don't know him who is right, then you're missing something majorly here. In fact, um, I have this from a book by Taylor Bunch. He says, the Ephesian church had not abandoned the doctrines of Christ or the form of godliness. Her failure was in becoming untrue to the person who is the very center and substance of Christianity. You can be a Christian without knowing Christ And it was becoming that way slowly but surely in the early church. They were abiding by rightness, but there was not a knowledge personal of him who was right. And that was a key. Um, This statement was also said, it's easy to offer the Lord the head, the hands, and the feet, while the heart is far from him. I don't want to be like that. I have found it's easy to do, though. Taylor Bunch, some of you may be able to listen to and recognize, you know what, I feel the same way. It's easy sometimes for me to do that. Um, I want you to imagine it this way. I don't have my, a good illustration, so, um, and there's no light bulb that you can be looking at right now. But just imagine there's a light bulb in your living room. You can turn around and look at that. Those of you who are in the sanctuary who are helping with our programming, you can see light bulbs everywhere. The light bulb in and of itself isn't worth much until there's electricity going to the light bulb. The light bulb is the church. The electricity is the love. No love, no electricity, no light. 
So in the church of Ephesus, they had all the right equipment, but they didn't have the electricity towards the end of their existence. Does that make sense? And that is a dangerous place to be. And that's, even though it looks good outwardly, there was some serious problems, and that's what God is dealing with in the church of Ephesus. The next church is the church of Smyrna. This is, picks up in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Uh, the picture of Smyrna is something else. Smyrna is what you would say in modern-day Turkey. You can see the name of the city there. Uh, it still exists. In fact, it's one of the two churches that's still anything. And it's one of the biggest cities in Turkey. Um, it is known... and. It's known for its figs, okay? I just want to... Got them here. So these... Uh, I don't know if you want to zoom in on these or not. You may not want to, but they're here. Um, these are Turkish figs, okay? And so my wife went out, and she was at Costco, and she got a bag of figs, and they came back, and I saw it, and it didn't say Turkish figs, and I'm a little bit of a connoisseur of figs if it's not a turkish fig i don't want to eat it nothing against those of you who like black mission figs god bless you they're great i love california too but turkish figs are something else and my wife brought in the bag and the bag didn't say turkish figs on it and i was like well i hope you like figs you know i'm not interested in eating them and then because they had this interesting name instead of calling them turkish figs they were called smyrnin figs Oh, and then the light bulb clicked. All oh, Smyrna's in Turkey. Okay, these are Turkish figs. So I'm thoroughly enjoying them. Go through a couple of them a day. Uh, I hope that the supply lasts through our social isolation time. Um, we'll come back to the figs. And then you see this phrase um, in verse 9. I know your works. This is meant in a positive way, by the way. This is not, hey, I know what you're doing. Uh, this is like, I know your works. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say there are Jews and are not, or of the synagogue of Satan. I want to emphasize something here. I know your tribulation. Do you realize for the past 2,000 years, in this city, Christians have been persecuted? They still exist. In fact, there's a larger amount of Christians in this city probably than any other city in Asia Minor. I, I don't like to say it, but I think sometimes persecution breeds strength. And the church is strong here. Um, again, Taylor Bunch, you're going to find that I, I lean towards us, uh, one of his books, so it's going to come out in my writing here a little bit. Uh, it's, it's a book called The Seven Epistles of Christ. And he says this on page 140. Christ never entices recruits for his cause by promises of an easy task and a pleasant life. That's so true. In fact, the last persecution in Smyrna was in 1922, the last major persecution. In fact, uh, that was just after World War I. There's a book that deals with some of that called Diamondola, if you ever want to read it. It's uh, dealing with the beginning of Christianity and some of the work that was done there turn of the century between 1800s and 1900s. Um, you know, Muslims in Turkey have a name for this city. They call it Infidel Smyrna. You know why they call it that? Because they've been unable to extinguish the light of the Christian church in that city. Uh, it's amazing. All right. Do you mind? I've just been waiting to do this. So, um, yeah, if I, if I put the little stem back in there, my wife will tell me something. So i got to try and figure out how to do this. Okay, I'm just touching one. Oh, man, you could just see the sugar just coming out of it. Oh, mm, mm, man, good. So, why would I do this? Other than being rude. I'm not trying to be rude. Smyrna still has figs. Smyrna still produces fruit. 2,000 years of persecution, and it still produces fruit. 
In fact, if you look at some of these other churches that didn't have the persecution, you don't see the fruit. But if you want fruit, you go to a place that's persecuted. When you're eating your figs, hmm, by the way, they're very good. When you're eating your figs, please remember, persecution does not stop fruit from growing. In fact, it's with persecution that you see the best fruit. It's a good thing for us to remember, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we look at the trials that we're facing. I know it's disgusting, but there we go. We look at the trials we face today, here, in 2020. And instead of letting it tear us down, we need to say, it brings fruit. It brings fruit. Do you realize Smyrna is the only church that doesn't have a recommendation? Actually, Philadelphia doesn't either. Two churches. Why? Sometimes when you're in persecution, in some ways it keeps you closer to Jesus than anything else. I pray that during this time, we will be drawing close to Jesus. Amen? And this is uh, Smyrna. All right. Let's look at our next one here. It says, I know your poverty. The church during this time wasn't rich. I mean, uh, you go to the Ephesus church, you get a feeling that there's some wealth going on. But you come to the Smyrna church, there's not wealth. They are materially poor, yet spiritually rich. That's a good place to be, in my opinion. If you get to Laodicea, and <laughs> we'll be there next week, you have materially wealthy yet spiritually poor. But you want to be the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is the place to be. Um, true wealth is found in spiritual riches. And if you don't have those riches, and you're wondering how to get them, spiritual riches are told you how to get them in the, in the message to Laodicea. We'll be looking at that next week. Just wanted to um, emphasize something. I have a friend of mine who says, your health is your wealth. You realize that. Having your health is a huge thing. Your spiritual health is your wealth. Uh, don't forget, if for some reason you, everything's going well and you're spiritually not doing well, <laughs> then you're not doing well. Uh, that's, that's the important thing, and this is what we see in Smyrna. All right. I'd like to share a story as I close the section of Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. He was the main minister of the city of Smyrna. Uh, had ministered in the lead position for at least 40 years. He was a disciple of the disciple John. Uh, he was brought in before the governor, and the governor said, I'm trying to do everything I can save you, when he did everything he could to save them, and still couldn't. You could hear the crowd outside saying, feed him to the lions, feed him to the lions, feed him to the lions. Polycarp is an old man, okay? Uh, I won't tell you his age because some of you might be take offense at what I just called him an old man. But he's, he's an older man. And he is, he is about to be fed to the lions, and they found out the lions were stuffed. They had eaten too many other people. And so they said, what we're going to do is we need to burn him at the stake. Well, the next day, they, they were, which was a Sabbath, they were pulling things together. The main people who wanted to see him killed were actually the Jews of that city. And it's important because you, you see... It talks about that here in this message to Smyrna. And they gathered the wood on Sabbath to burn Polycarp. I mean, their hatred was that intense. Uh, just an amazing picture. Sabbath is not as important as getting rid of heretics uh, sometimes. Have you so, have noticed that? I hope it's not that way with us, right? Uh, our day with our Creator God should be should primo, primo. So here's what he said to the governor. Eighty and six years have I served him, that is Jesus, and never has he done me wrong. How then could I curse my king who saved me? What an incredible response. And Parlycarp yielded up his body to the flames in the church of Smyrna. So where's Jesus in all this? We know he's walking among. We know that he's, he's the one who's trimming. He's the one who's making sure the oil's there. But notice what he said, I'm the one who was dead and come to life. Jesus knows 
what the Smyrnans are going through. He's been there. And Jesus knows something, we can never forget this. Jesus knows that oftentimes the crown of thorns precedes the crown of victory. It's often, and is that true for the Smyrnans? When Jesus says, I was dead and now I'm alive, he's telling them, I've walked where you're about to walk. Know that I know what you're going through. And we're going to see that again in another place. Jesus knows his church, and not only does he know his church and what they're facing, he's been through what they're facing so they can trust him to pull them through. All right, our next church is the third church. So we started out with, what was the name of it? Ephesus. It was down here on the coast. Then we went up to Smyrna, which was on a little inlet, uh, about 30 miles from the seacoast, but it was on a little inlet of the Aegean Sea. Smyrna is still there today. Then we go a little bit higher now to Pergamum. And it depends which translation of the Bible you have. It's Pergamos, Pergamon, Pergamum. Um, Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was, uh, yeah, kind of a, a neat place in many ways. It was located at a mountain spur about a thousand feet up. Uh, the sides were almost perpendicular. There was only one way to get to the city, and that was up a very steep road that went up to the top of this mountain. Um, that, um, it was so defensible, so impregnable, that um, they actually, uh, Lysimachus, one of the generals that took over after Alexander the Great, Lysimachus took his $10 million worth of personal fortune and placed it in Pergamos because he knew that no one could touch it there. If it's there, it's safe. No one's going to be able to get it. Um, so th it had a, a reputation for being uh, impregnable. It, was, uh, <laughs> it also had... Um, a good library, 20,000 scrolls. So Pergamus's library was second only to Alexandria. Those of you who like history, the Alexandrian library is well known. And Pergamus was building theirs, and those in Egypt didn't like what was happening because, you know, it's competition. So what do you do with competition? The same thing that happens in today's world. You stop <laughs> exporting or importing. So they stopped exporting paper, papyrus, from Egypt to Pergamum. So Pergamum said, okay, we will develop a new way. And they developed something that we now call parchment, based from the skins of animals. Uh, and that was developed according to uh, history because of some of the things that were happening. The poet Homer and the historian Herodotus all studied there. One more thing, this phrase, Satan's throne. That's a strong one. Can we read that? We haven't even read this first section. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr and who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Do you, do you see what's coming out here? This is Satan's stronghold. That's the picture that we're seeing of Pergamos. Um, Jesus says, I know that. Uh, one of the most interesting things here is it actually is a... Pergamon was not just the capital of the Asian province, but it was also the headquarters of the pagan worship. And that's common. Uh, when you have church and state united, typically the headquarters of the state is also the headquarters of the religion. And that's what you see with Pergamum. And that's what's taking place. Um, uh, compulsory worship of the emperor was very big. In fact, emperor worship was very much uh, a big issue in Pergamum. They had major temples. Probably the most famous temple was an altar. It really wasn't a temple. It was an altar to Zeus. If you even do some research on this. They took uh, years unearthing this, and then it is put in the Museum of Berlin. They rebuilt a replica. We're talking about, you and I wouldn't say altar. We would say temple. They called it an altar. I mean, we're just talking a massive structure. The main altar of Zeus was 40 feet high of solid black marble. I mean, just, just an incredible piece of construction with um, uh, art carvings on it. Uh, 
There was another famous thing that took place in Pergamum, and that was there was worship of the serpent god because the serpent would bring healing. And if any of you have seen a modern medical uh, symbol, you have the serpent wrapped around it, and this comes from Pergamum. Okay, that's uh, some of it. So you're realizing that some of the things we see today really weren't that, they come a lot of it from the ancient Greek culture. All right. I have a question, and it was a question that I put in my mind because I gave you a lot of facts just now about Pergamum. Where is Jesus in Pergamum? Where do we see Jesus in this message to Pergamum? And I'm going to start out with simply this. He says this, I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is. Like He knows the circumstances that Pergamum face. Now, not all of us face the same circumstances, am I right? Once that Pergamon, the people in Pergamon faced it, it was difficult. I mean, you were dealing with situations where you could be called at any time to, to worship the emperor, and if you don't, you're killed. He goes, I know where you dwell. I know your works, and that's where you're at. I understand that. Some of you face some hard times. Sometimes standing up for Jesus seems to be really hard. You say, well, it's probably easy for Pastor Chuck to stand up for Jesus, but for me to stand up for Jesus where I am at, it's difficult. God knows. God knows where you dwell, and he knows the battles that you face, and he also knows your effort to stand for him in those places. He knows it, and that is good news. Nothing is, is, is passes by the eyes of Christ without him noticing when you are giving your very best. I want you to note, he notices the good things first. And sometimes we forget that. We have a God who focuses on that. Um, all right. So we see improvement, a call for improvement, though. And I think that it would be good for us to emphasize this. The call for improvement is found here. Let's read in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there, have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, please notice these two things, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Because you have theirs who hold this doctrine. So among the Christian church, there are those who have no problem, if I could say it that way, with sexual immorality or with idol worship in some way. You have both of these things here at this church. Fascinating. Remember the church of Ephesus? We stay away from the Nicolaitans because they do these things. Smyrna? Nothing said wrong about them. I think they're just getting persecuted so much. And now we get to Pergamos, and talking about Pergamos, I said, you know what? You're, you're, you're allowing some of these people. In your church, there are some who actually believe these things. And that's what I'm holding against you. So do you see this interesting picture? Jesus is just and a justifier. Uh, what am I saying? He says, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Yet, what's most important is your connection with me. Do you get that, that feel? You must be connected with me. And yet, at the same time, wrong is wrong. I don't promote compromise, and yet at the same time, please don't lose your first love because everything's gone if you don't have that. He is wanting this for one purpose. Well, there's many, many purposes, but one that I think is being emphasized in the seven churches. The seven churches starts out with Jesus among seven candle lampstands. His job is to watch them so that they can give light. Compromise doesn't give the church ability to give light. Just like having lost your first love doesn't give you the ability to have light. If you want to be a light in your community, you must have Jesus Christ in your heart and life. And if you want to be a light in your community, compromising and acting like everybody else doesn't give them light. Acting like darkness is never light. So you see that this purpose, by the way, so this story of Balaam, uh, maybe you don't know the story of Balaam. I remember when I first heard this, I was in college because I grew up with Balaam and the donkey, right? Uh, Balaam gets on the donkey, the donkey's riding, the donkey hurts him, he gets mad, the donkey hits the donkey, the donkey speaks to him, and he, start, he starts arguing with the donkey, which is always a fun story, right? Why would a human being argue with a donkey? 
And, um, and we learn that as a result, he tries to curse Israel, and it doesn't work. He goes and he stands. In fact, I think I have a picture of it. I hope so. Nope. Ha, got rid of it. Sorry, Thyatira. So here we have, you have Balaam. He's trying to curse, and he can't curse. Instead, out of his mouth comes blessing. And finally, he actually curses the people who brought him to curse the Israelites. It's a great story. And so Balaam goes back home, but he's frustrated because the king of Moab's name was Balak. And Balak said, I'll give you some good money if you can curse them. And Balaam said, I want that money. How can I get that money? I know how I can get the money. And you can pick up this story. And I have, uh, I'm not turning there, but it's Numbers 25 and Numbers 31. You see elements connected with this, okay? Numbers 25, 1 through 9. So here's what Balaam does. He goes to the king, he goes to Balak, and he says, Balak, if they disobey God and turn their back on God, then God can no longer protect them from curses. So I can't curse them. But what I can do is let's convince them to sin. And then that'll take them out. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm just I'm giving the picture of what took place with Balaam, okay? So Balaam comes and tells Balak, and so they get this great, great show they put on. It is a special feast to one of their gods. Uh, they're going to have an idol. They're going to have dancing. It's going to be like a show like you've never seen before. And everyone's excited about it. It's going to be a great festival. And then some of the women specifically go in and they say, come on over. And they invite some of the Israelite women to come. And then the Israelite women go with these heathen women. And, and some of the Israelite men say, ooh, I think I'm going to go too. Because they like to look at the girls. And soon you have this party that's not just worship and idol. It's rampant licentiousness. This is immorality. This is a, uh, yeah, not the kind of party you want to be at. And as a result, God's people have a very great failure at that time. In fact, if you read in history, they call it Baal Peor. Uh, those of you who like studying in the theological terms connected with it. Balaam did this and through this avenue destroyed or um, took down for a time the Israelite troop movement, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. And looking at the history of the Old Testament to help me interpret Revelation, because that's how we look at it. Remember, the Old Testament's where you get the stories from. I look at it and I see, oh, that's what's happening in the Christian church at this time. There's an enticement to pull away from your, your fidelity to God and start doing things that are against his word. Um, by the way, fornication was the real issue in the day of Balaam and idol worship. But remember, these are symbols. And these are symbols for what we face today. Fornication is having a husband, other, having a relationship with someone that's not your husband or spouse, dare I say it that way, right? Who is the spouse of the church? Jesus Christ. So having a relationship with him or her that is not your spouse spiritually is spiritual fornication. And that's, the, that's a, a huge challenge that comes to the church. Um, idol worship is, having, is worshiping someone other than God. And that's also, you know, is there something in your life that you hold that you worship more than him? I mean, let's, uh, those are the questions I remember being asked. And I'm like, nah, 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 and we go on and forget about it. <laughs> I don't want to remember that. But the reality is we need to see who holds the highest, highest point in our life. Who is the person we love to talk about, to dwell about, to read about, to sing about? Where do you spend the majority of your time? And the only reason I ask this is because it's an issue of love. Please understand that. Um, how I'm asking these questions could sometimes come across as legalistic. I'm very desirous it doesn't happen that way. But what I am desirous of is this. If you find out the first love in your life is not God and that you have allowed yourself to be married to someone else, could you divorce that other person, that other thing, whatever it is? I think that's my, my desire because there's no true happiness apart from being married to Christ. And that's the place where we want to be. All right. The last church we will look at today, and that is the city of Thyatira. So we have started with Ephesus on the coast. 
Uh, no longer. Then we went to Smyrna, and then we went up to Pergamos. Now we're coming back down in this circle to Thyatira. Thyatira is not on the ocean. It's not a capital. There's no major city and major temples there. Every place has temples, but no major temples. It's not known for any special thing. It doesn't compete with the high society of the previous three. Thyatira is a simple, used to be military post. Now it's a trade city. This is during the time of John, okay? Let's read it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God. I just stop real quick. These things says the Son of God. Do you realize the phrase Son of God is used nowhere else in Revelation? It's only used here in Thyatira. Interesting. And by the way, who's speaking? Those of you who have red letter edition, this is who? Jesus speaking. So Jesus is calling himself the Son of God. I challenge you to find how many times he actually does that. Jesus' actually favorite term for himself is always son of man. But here he's, he's calling himself. Now, and you read the Gospels, you hear about the Son of God all the time. The devils call him the Son of God. Other people call him the Son of God. Even Pilate, you say that you're the Son of God? But in this setting, Jesus calls himself the Son of God. My challenge for you is to figure out why. We don't have time. But I want you to note it's very special. It has to be. Okay. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. Do you realize that this has happened four times in a row? I know your works. He knows. And again, it's always in a positive way. We've almost always looked as I know your works in a negative way. But this phrase, I know your works, is always in the positive section of the message to the church. I know your works. I know your works. There are some things that are being done in Cape Cod for God's work that no one knows about but you. I know that. Some of you let it slip or some of you accidentally, I find out, incredible work that you're doing for God. But no one knows. Some of you like to keep it that way. But God knows your works. He knows what you're doing. He knows the burden on your heart, like Thyatira and every other church. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith and your patience. And as for your works, they last or more than the first. So you see this picture of Thyatira. Thyatira was, um, this is actually the longest message of, the, of, the, of any of the seven churches. So I'm going to be going rather fast, not fast, but I'm going to be missing certain parts. Feel free to study, look at this. There's some great books I'll suggest. Um, it is located on a major trade route. It's the smallest of the seven cities. Uh, there is a bunch of something called matter roots that grew up around uh, Thyatira. Matter roots were used to get a, a, like a dark reddish dye. Uh, the Bible actually uses the phrase purple. And this is an uh, uh, artist rendition on the screen of Lydia. Remember uh, Paul meets Lydia in Philippi? Well, she is from Thyatira, and she's a seller of purple. And this is why, because purple was the big color of Thyatira. Um, so this is, uh, they're known for that. This is what they do. Um, there's other things that are connected with them. They have leather workers, uh, potters. Are you ready? Slave dealers. Thyatira is a slave, slave center. And bronze smith. And I find bronze smith interesting because Jesus introduces himself as the one whose feet are like bronze. Just kind of interesting. But you have these, this picture laid out. Um, so you really don't have forced emperor worship. You don't have major, don't mess with Diana of the Ephesians, you're going to get in trouble. So what is it here? The danger in Thyatira is not from without, it's from within. And that's something that we see. Um, and it's going to be described more. There's a negative, and the negative takes up a whole section of this message. The negative is about a woman named Jezebel. You got it. And Jezebel, if you want to understand the concept of Jezebel, again, I go back to what part of the Bible? I go back to the Old Testament and say, what can I learn about Jezebel? And you can find a whole lot about Jezebel if you're looking at the Old Testament. Um, Here's one thing it says about her. 
Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit, there it is, sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Wait, didn't we just see that as the issue with Pergamos? We did. And then we saw the Ephesus fight against that. Smyrna didn't talk much about it. Pergamos gave into it. And now it's being taught in the church of Thyatira. Do you see a progression? not a positive progression that's taking place here. Um, what about Jezebel? She was a wicked queen, married to a king of Israel by the name of Ahab. Um, she was a very strong promoter of the worship of Baal. Uh, she had 850 false prophets on her payroll. They fed and ate at her table. Um, under her, between her and Ahab, was a union of what you and I would now call a union of church and state. You have, she was the head, in a way, of the church, even though she wasn't a prophet herself. She supported everything that was in that area. And then Ahab, of course, was the head of the state. It was a very prosperous time in the nation of Israel, in spite of the spiritual problems they had. Um, she instigated incredible persecution against God's people. And, of course, we read the story of that with Elijah and among other people. And she had a daughter, Athaliah, who she married out to the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, we're just talking about this woman caused problems. Jezebel was a problem lady. Um, in fact, I don't know many people who name their daughter Jezebel today. I mean, the name is just known. <laughs> we don't want to do that. It's like naming your son Lucifer. Um, so... This issue of fornication, I wanted to just take a little bit of time with it um, because I believe it gives us a, a better picture of what God's trying to say here. Jezebel, actually, when you read the story of Jezebel, you really don't re see Jezebel as a person with fornication. You realize that. If you read in the Old Testament and read Jezebel's story, you, she has one husband. <laughs> you don't get the picture that there's something else going on. So what is Fornication. Throughout the Old Testament, and again, I'm speaking it from a symbolic spiritual way. Those of you who know otherwise, uh, that's not where our focus is right now. Spiritual fornication is spending time with someone who's not your spouse. It's having a relationship with someone who you're not married to. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. God rebukes His people as fornicators when they go after strange gods. Uh, you can find this in Ezekiel chapter 16. You can find this... Um, in Second uh, Chronicles 21, and then, of course, whole books, Hosea is dealing with it. It's a union of a church, a woman, because a woman is a symbol of a church in Bible prophecy. It's the union of a church with someone other than Christ. In this case, it was the state with Jezebel and Ahab. And I believe that this church during the time of Thyatira is the same exact thing. Um, whenever this happens, I... I we have seen in history, and you have seen, I'm sure, if you have a marriage between church and state, the state doesn't come up to the spiritual level of the church. The church goes down to the spiritual level of the state. Because there is going to be equilibrium eventually. And it's going to be typically the going down of the state. Um, first four churches. Ephesus hates false doctrine. Lost their first love. God said, I need to work with you so that you can get your light burning again. And that light comes from having the love of Christ in your life. The second church, Smyrna. You're highly persecuted. I'm not going to say anything that you need to nude right now. Just hold on fast, then I will give you a crown of life. The next one, Pergamos. You know, what? Well, you're allowing some people there who, who believe some false doctrine. Thyatira. Wait, you're allowing people to teach and promote false doctrine. You have this progression of thought that comes through. The council. Um, verse 24. Now to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the deaths of Satan. In other words, you're not following Jezebel's teachings. You're not going that direction. I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Even in Thyatira, there's people who worship God the way they're supposed to. 
Hold fast till I come. We're going to look at this whole section a whole lot more as we get to the seven seals because we see a repetition. But I'd like to uh, share with you in five minutes, three minutes before you fall asleep, the a, a overview of history. Ephesus represents God's Christian church in the first century. They were a pure church in doctrine. They were very aggressive in their evangelism and were successful. Next, you have the next 200 years with Smyrna. If you look at the next 200 years of Christian history, roughly the second and third century, the persecution of Christians was phenomenal. See, in the first century, Jews were getting persecuted. But the Jews started transferring that persecution more to Christians, and the Roman church picked up the persecution, and you have some incredible persecution that takes place over the next 200 years. But then it changes. A guy by the name of Constantine comes in. When Constantine comes in, and this is all classic history, and these just line up beautifully with it. When Constantine comes in, Constantine makes Christianity okay. It's legal now. And so you're, it's okay to be a Christian. You won't get in trouble. However, whenever it became legal, certain other things start coming with it. You soon start being allowed to uh, compromise, if you will. And soon some of the things that were pagan now become Christian. And some of the things that are Christian uh, are now treated as bad. And you have this, as one person described it, baptized paganism that took place. And then... Uh, the church of Thyatira would be the church of the Dark Ages. Uh, this is the time when there was an absolute, just like Jezebel and Ahab, you have this absolute union of church and state. Absolute union of church and state. So, um, by the way, that was thousands of years. This is incredible. So which church on this scale of four probably was the best church. You like Smyrna, right? Okay. So we have Ephesus, Smyrna. Who would probably be the worst church? Thyatira. So I have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira. Um, which church? Okay. In each prompt, in each uh, message, God gives promises to him who overcomes. There is one promise for Ephesus. Notice this. If you turn with me, chapter 2 and verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. By the way, beautiful promise. I'll give to eat from the tree of life. Smyrna, notice what their promise is. Verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Two promises to Smyrna. Let's look at the next one. Pergamos, verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give, to eat, give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the name, on stone I will give him a new name, which no one knows except him who receives it. Three promises to Pergamos. Now let's look at Thyatira. Verse 26. He who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessels. And verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. The worse off the church is, the more promises they receive. That, for me, is mind-blowing. Because you and I would think, okay, the worse off they are, the worse I'd be like, you know, get on with you, please. Let's just get through your bad reign and get to the next church. But that's not how God works. When things aren't well, and when His church is struggling, God is in the midst of His church, just like this picture. He's walking up among them, and He says, I've got what you need. I can guarantee you when you overcome, I, I will give you this. I will do this for you. I promise you this. The greater your struggle, the greater the promises of God. The greater your struggle, the more difficulty you face, the greater the promises of God. God doesn't take his church out of trial. God does not remove difficulty from them. But the greater 
the persecution, the greater the compromise they face. And even if they've lost their love, God gives promises. It's good news today. I believe that there are probably some who have lost their first love who are listening to this. And yes, Ephesus talks about the church of the first century, but I think it can, this message is, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So this applies to all of us. There may be some who have lost their first love. He's got a promise for you. There may be some here struggling with persecution. He knows he's got a promise for you. There may be some of you who are starting to compromise in your life. You don't like where you're at. He knows he's got a promise for you. And there's some of you who say, you know what? I think I'm almost turned my back on God. I'm, I'm just out there right now. And God says, I've got more promises for you than anybody else. Don't stay away. Come back. You realize that Jesus never leaves his churches. He's always in the midst of them, regardless of what they face and regardless of what's going on in their lives. We have an awesome God. I want to encourage you. We'll look at this next week, but he is standing at the door and knocking. He will continue to knock because he loves his people and he loves his churches. This week, may God bless you as you walk with him, as you listen to his call, and as you take him up on the promises that he's promised to give. God bless you.